Well, it's wonderful for me as pastor to hear what the Lord is teaching you and all that God is revealing to you through His Word and opening your hearts to that, to respond to it. What a great joy it is to just know that, that He's carrying us along and teaching us how we are to be as Christians. So we begin our time tonight. Would you just bow with me in a word of prayer as we begin? Father, we do thank you for tonight, this opportunity once again to be here and to open your word. Lord, it seems at times that when we open your word, we drink from a fire hydrant, really. It's coming at us so rapidly, so quickly, in all different ways through Bible studies. And we listen to things on the radio. We hear others teach. And we come here and we are taught. And Lord, sometimes we, we forget, like Tim was exhorting us to not forget, to meditate. We certainly do forget the things we've been taught, and oftentimes because they're stacked so quickly on one another. But Lord, open our hearts to these things and make sure that we know them well, that we are living them in our own life and heart. We are walking by them that you would change us into Christ-likeness that would encourage our hearts and that we would do exactly what you have equipped us to do and that is endure to the end. Thank you for that. Thank you for your power in our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, take your Bibles tonight with me and open them to our study of the book of Ephesians. We're returning to that tonight. We're returning to chapter 1. And uh, we are coming to this final section, not of chapter 1 at large, but this final section in verses 3 through 14, that one long sentence in the original language that Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus. And I've entitled our series, God's Ultimate Purpose. God's Ultimate Purpose. As I was thinking about our time tonight, I was thinking about the Christian life, the difficulty of living the Christian life, not because it's difficult in the sense that God hasn't given us what we need, but difficult in the sense that we oftentimes are so forgetful about what we have. Peter reminds the believers that he's writing to that God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness in 2 Peter chapter 1. And so he tells them that through those promises of God, through the great power of God, and through the promises God has granted to us by His divine nature, we have been partakers of that divine nature, and we have escaped the corruption that the world has. And because of that, we can, or we are to be applying in our life the character qualities of the Christian walk, diligence in our faith and our moral character and in our moral excellence and knowledge of the things of God and in your knowledge of self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness love. And then the Apostle Peter says in that chapter this reality about the Christian life. For if these qualities are yours and increasing In other words, if they're being exercised, growing in them, growing stronger and stronger because you're you're exercising these things based upon the reality of what God has done for you, then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're grounded in the faith. You're grounded in, in the essence of what God has done for you and therefore you're living that out because you're remembering those things and exercising those things in your life but if you're not doing that if you lack these you're either blind you're either not saved at all that's not the reality of your life or you're short-sighted because you've forgotten your purification from former sins this is the tendency of the Christian walk to be forgetful to forget who we are because we forget what we are. And I've entitled our series, God's Ultimate Purpose, here in Ephesians chapter 1, because that's the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses several different times in just these few verses. And he uses it in the sections that we have broken it up. He 
uses that phrase, to the praise of His glory, or to the praise of the glory of His grace, as he states it in verse 6. And then down in verse 12, he says, to the praise of His glory. And then again in verse 14, to the praise of His glory. So the Apostle Paul is doing just what the Apostle Peter was doing. He's reminding us just what we have in Christ, what God has granted to us. And he's saying because of that, this is the ultimate purpose. This is God's ultimate purpose in carrying out his plan of redemption so that he would have a saved people, a people who are saved from the ravages of sin and that they might glorify him. In other words, that he might receive the glory that is due his name. That is simply to say that He saves and all that He has done in saving us is to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. In fact, it's interesting. If you just turn really quickly over to Revelation chapter 4, when we see John on the island of Patmos and here he is in Revelation chapter 4, seeing this grand vision of the glories of heaven and all that God is going to do in the tribulation time. And in chapter 4, he's just been taken up to heaven to begin to see these things. And in verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say this, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before Him before the throne saying notice this worthy are you O Lord our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power why because you created all things and because of your will they exist and were created God deserves glory. God deserves honor. We have been saved to the praise of His glory because God has created us that way. This is how God has created. And this is what we have been studying over the past six to eight weeks here in Ephesians chapter 1. And tonight, I want us to just focus on these last verses Beginning essentially in verse 11 and going then down through verse 14. Let me just read these verses for us. We'll begin back in verse 9 because at least uh, we could actually begin back in verse 7 really because at least in the punctuation in our English Bibles, the period is there at the end of verse 6. Let me begin in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were first, the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. And in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now I'm sure that you have noticed if you have watched or read the latest news in this last week that there was a tragedy that happened in our world. A tourist submarine was lost at sea. 
The individuals who were aboard that submarine, it was unknown for some time as to what took place in it, but we all know now what their fate was. Rescuers were scouring the sea in hopes of finding that vessel with the hope that maybe they would save those people. And the news was constantly giving updates. And it didn't matter if you were on the, the internet looking at news. It seemed like the headlines always were about this submarine that was lost and what might have happened. The interesting thing is that at the time, all other news in our world had taken a back seat to that story. It seemed as if that was the only story happening in the world. Why? Because it's that kind of thing that the world finds so interesting and so curious. And it certainly is worthy of news, even when the outcome is as tragic as we know. But when you open the Bible, there is a greater news story than that. Because it is the story that traces the plan of God's salvation back to the very mind of God before the world was ever called into existence. And it is a plan that has ramifications for all eternity. I didn't find any news reports about it this week. All the news reports were about the temporal reality of this tourist vessel, sadly enough, that was lost at sea and the five individuals on board lost their lives. But no one was talking about the story, the greater news story that is found in the Scriptures. It's a bigger story than any breaking news of the day. It has far more implications than for the families of the people that were affected by the horrific tragedy in the news that unfolded this past week, as sad as that is. And as we have seen, the story that we find here in the Scriptures, particularly here in Ephesians chapter 1, has three sections. The first section is the movement of God the Father as He sovereignly elects those that He chooses by His own will and blesses them with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's exactly what we learned back in verse 3. That God is to be blessed. God is to, to be held in high esteem because He has blessed us. That is, those who know Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of our attachment to Christ had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with Him. And so it starts with God the Father. And then it moves into the reality of God the Father carrying out His sovereign plan by the Son through His birth and through His life, through His death and resurrection, whereby all of those whom God has chosen are forgiven of their sin and follow the Son as their Lord. This is what he says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. He lavished it upon us, not because we did anything, but only and solely because of His grace. And then finally, the work of the Holy Spirit is introduced to us here in this final section by which all who have been chosen by the Father and redeemed through the Son are sealed in a vital, actual union with Christ, thereby guaranteeing all the benefits of Christ's saving work for them. So the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. And as we have been studying these sections, we have seen all of the nuances of the Father's election, verses 3 through 6. The Father has chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What are the ramifications of that? Our holiness and blameless before Him. 
adoption as sons through Christ to God. All of this according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestows upon the Beloved. That is Jesus Christ. He freely bestows all this upon Christ and those who are in Christ receive all that is bestowed upon Christ. Then we looked intently at the redemption that we have through the Son in verses 7 and following. We have redemption, which means the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins in which God removes them as far as the east is from the west. He wipes them out. He has paid the price. It was all according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, and He gave us discernment that we might know the mystery of His will according to His kind intention. What is that? That all things are summing up in Jesus Christ, whether it's in the heaven or on the earth. And now here in verse 11 and following, we get to see the work of the Spirit in carrying out the saving plan of God. God chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit carries all of this out by His work. And so the Apostle Paul lays out for us here in this final section five ways the Spirit works. Five ways in which the Spirit works. I don't think this is an exhaustive list of all that the Spirit does, but certainly it is ways the Spirit works in salvation. Five ways, you could probably list that, five ways the Spirit works in salvation. Let's begin to look at these tonight. Number one, the first way the Spirit works is the call to salvation. The call to salvation. Notice in verse 11, it says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now some of us may be saying to ourselves, that doesn't sound like a call. That doesn't sound like a call at all. In fact, it sounds like Paul is just restating verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Kind of sounds like a restatement of that. In Him we also have obtained an inheritance. But I believe this is, as it is, the call to salvation because he begins with those words that we have heard already and now repeat it again. In Him. That little prepositional phrase, that ornery little phrase in the English language that is so important for us. In Him. In Him. That has been the tie for the believer all the way through these words. We have been linked with Christ, and that linkage takes place through the power of the Spirit. In other words, we would have no linkage with Christ were it not for the work of the Spirit. Having been predestined to salvation by the Father through His choosing, and thereby that working out of all the spiritual blessings in time, all of that is the work of the Holy Spirit through linking us to Christ. It is in Him. It is through Him. It is by Christ. By the power of the Spirit linking us with Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes. To understand all that Christ has done. It is the Holy Spirit who grants faith so that you and I as dead sinners begin to breathe the breath of faith. We believe. It is the Holy Spirit that moves our wills to exercise that faith in Jesus Christ. And so without the effectual call of the Spirit, there is no in Him happening with us. And so you cannot just gloss over this in verse 11, at the end of verse 10 actually. In Him. In Him. Were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit, we would have no inheritance with Christ. It's in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, 
we would have no hope in Christ. Were it not for the Holy Spirit working in us, we in ourselves would turn from Christ and reject all that we have ever heard about Christ. That is why Jesus said that it is the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, he said, This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Jesus. In regard to righteousness, because Jesus went to the Father where they could see Him no more. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings that to light. And so it is through the effectual call of the Spirit that we are in Him and have eternal inheritance. So that is the first working of the Spirit. God chooses. The Son certainly is necessary for the redemption by His blood, and yet without the work of the Holy Spirit, none of that matters. And so the Spirit must work. So the effectual call of the Spirit connects us with Jesus Christ so that we have an eternal inheritance. Secondly, Secondly, the work of the Holy Spirit is in salvation and in all things to glorify God. To glorify Christ. We could hone it down really to that. To glorify Christ. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of this will, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So again, this emphasizes the point we have made and we need to emphasize it again because God the Father predestined us to salvation and that salvation surely comes through the Son, but it comes through the Son by means of the work of the Holy Spirit So that we who actually hope in Christ might be, in fact, to the praise of His glory. I believe this is part of the reason why Paul introduces this phrase three different times running through these verses. Because God the Father is to be praised, verse 6. God the Son is to be praised, verse 12. And God the Spirit is to be praised, verse 14. All three are to be praised. Why? Because all three are God. It is the triune Godhead here working in salvation. And so in some way we can say that this is the primary duty of the Spirit. The primary duty of the Spirit is to ensure that God is praised. God the Father chooses, God the Son goes and redeems, and God the Spirit ensures that within it all the Spirit or God is praised for all that God is doing. In other words, the Spirit ensures that the ultimate purpose of God is carried out. In fact, in John 15, Jesus says of the Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... Who is that? The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. What will He do? He will testify of Me. The Spirit will speak of Me. He will glorify Me. That is to simply say, He will ensure that I am glorified. That's what Jesus is saying. He will ensure that that I, in my works and and in your minds, in remembrance of Me and all that I have done, is a, a glory to Me. Further in John's Gospel, John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this, But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me. He will glorify Me. Why? Because He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. The Spirit takes what is... God the Father, God the Son discloses it so that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are glorified in it all. 
This is very important for us because there is so much confusion out there, particularly in evangelicalism in the strange sectors of evangelicalism about the work of the Spirit. But we must never confuse the work of the Holy Spirit in our minds or in our hearts because to do so is to fall into error. We see this happening all over the place in Pentecostal groups and liberal areas of theology. When people who claim to know Christ, people who claim to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they focus their attention on some kind of manifestation of the Spirit, the only thing that happens is trouble. Trouble comes. All kinds of wackiness. The work of the Spirit is not to highlight, listen, the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is not to highlight the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to highlight Christ. To exalt Jesus Christ. The role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, John 16, 14. He will glorify me. The role of the Spirit is to glorify Christ. And therefore, everything that happens in our lives and in the church needs to be seen through that kind of framework or we can go astray in all that we do. It needs to glorify Christ. That implies that since the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ, then any emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit that detracts from the person and work of Jesus Christ is not the work of the Spirit. You realize that? Anything that claims that it's following Jesus Christ yet highlighting the Spirit isn't the work of the Spirit. If it's not highlighting Christ, if it isn't glorifying Christ in it, then it's not of the Spirit. In fact... It is the work of another kind of spirit, according to 1 John 4, 2 and following. It is the work of the Antichrist. But whenever Christ is exalted, whenever Christ is glorified, then the Holy Spirit is at work and we can recognize it and we can thank Him for it. Notice, notice by the way, here in verse 12, that the work of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ is not absent of our engagement in it. Let me say that again. The work of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ is not absent of the true believer's engagement in the reality of glorifying Christ. Notice what he says. He says in verse 11, right? We've also obtained an inheritance, having been protested according to the purpose of his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That is simply to say that God has intended that Christ be glorified through the Spirit in our lives by us. By us. That is the work of the Spirit of God in us. So we can ask ourselves the question tonight as we think about our own Christian lives. Are we glorifying Christ with our lives? Is what I say, is what I do, is how I live glorifying Christ. You can go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, review, review that list. If these are increasing, they render you neither useless or ineffective, right? You're living out what you know to be true about Jesus Christ in your life, and that is the work of the Spirit in what I say, in what I do. If that is not there, Peter says you're either blind or short-sighted because you've forgotten what you've been purified of. See, this is the trouble in our Christian lives. We need to examine ourselves as to whether we are glorifying Christ or simply glorifying something else. If we're not glorifying Christ, it's not the work of the Spirit. And every true Christian is, in some way or another, glorifying Christ. Why? Because they have the Spirit 
And that's why the Spirit came. That's why the Spirit came, to glorify Christ. So the Spirit links us with Christ by means of an effectual call. And then the Spirit glorifies Christ in us by how we live for Christ. Number three. Number three. In that activity, the Spirit of God removes division. He removes division among us. Notice verse 13. He begins with those familiar words again. In Him. Some of your Some of your translations may say, in Him we. We can go back to notice at the end of verse 10 into verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 12, or in verse 13, in Him you also. In other words, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make all of us into one new people called what? The church. Here we are. We are the church. And so Paul, being a Jew, is speaking to those from the Jews who are called, as he speaks in verse 12, we. In Him also we, he says. And then in verse 13, he changes and he says, in Him you also. So you say, what is that? Well, that is... Those to whom he is writing. He's writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to those Gentiles in Ephesus. He, talking about the Jews, in him we, or also we have obtained, and in him you also. And so it's extremely important for Paul to say that. To say it that way. Why? Because of the hostility that existed between the Jewish and Gentile world. Paul's day similar really to our day in very increasing ways, the world was a divided place. I don't think you could find a more polar, polarly divided country than ours in the world. And it's into this world that God has put a new people. It's into this kind of world that God has allowed us to be. By His grace, we are a people who have been transformed by the power of the Spirit and we are a united people. Why? Because we're united with Jesus Christ in a spirit in which all the differences between us don't matter. All the idiosyncrasies that we have don't matter. Now, we who once may have been rivals with one another, now we are one new man. Now we are one body in Christ. We are new. And so Paul says, all the division is gone. All that rivalry is gone. Now in Christ, it doesn't matter anymore. You were who were once not a Jew. It doesn't matter if we are Jews. We have been brought together in Christ. And of course, we know Paul talks about that further on in Ephesians. So the Spirit calls. The Spirit glorifies. And the Spirit unifies. Number four. Number four, this is very telling for us. The Spirit only speaks through the Word of God. The Spirit only speaks through the Word of God. He says in verse 13, 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There's a, an intimate connection between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. There's an inseparable connection in the intimacy that there is between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Just as the Holy Spirit only glorifies Jesus Christ, so too the Holy Spirit only speaks through and with the Word of God. That's the only way. There is no other way. He doesn't speak through impressions in your heart. He does not speak through voices in your head. He only speaks through the Word. Let me say it another way just so I'm clear. 
the Holy Spirit never speaks and never works apart from the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit never speaks, never works apart from the truth of the Scriptures. Why that is so confusing in the modern church today is baffling to me. Why that is such a variation and such a, 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 an abomination to, to try to highlight some kind of sense in which we talk with words as if we have received some special revelation from God. People say time and time again, I hear it and I wonder what is going on when they say, well, God said to me, and they're not quoting Scripture. They're not quoting verse. They're not saying, God said to me, and I, and I heard that when I read this passage, and here's the verse that He said it in. They're not saying that. They're saying it as if somehow, in some mysterious, mystical kind of way, they have received something from God, and most oftentimes, if not all the time, it's some kind of aberrant thought that has nothing to do with Scripture itself other than using wording that sounds very spiritual. This has been a plague in the history of the church since its inception. Reading the history of the reformers recently, the Protestant reformers certainly knew that the Spirit of God only spoke through the Scriptures. They had a strong belief in the Holy Spirit, particularly in His work in bringing people to faith and leading them in that faith, preserving them to the end they spoke a lot about that. They believed that that was the truth because that's what the Bible said. I was encouraged recently when I heard somebody say that they came to this church, they started to come here to Fellowship Bible Church because they were encouraged. The first time they came, people were actually talking about the Bible. Can you imagine that? What a strange thing to find out in a church. People talking about the Bible. Because the churches they were going to before, nobody wanted to have a discussion about the Bible. The Reformers knew what the Spirit did. Why? Because they believed what the Bible said. John chapter 3, verse 8, they believed the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You can't tell in, in the reality of what took place in their life. You can't see it, but you know something happened. You know the Spirit was affected because they're made alive. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 14. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, things which we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. We're combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Certainly, unsaved people can read the words of the Bible, but they do not understand the reality of what God means by what he says in the truth of his word. And yet this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit leads us in truth. For the, for the Reformers, it was verses like those two that I read, those two passages that, that reminded them of the importance of the Bible in knowing the mind of God. In other words, if you want to know God, you want to know what God thinks, then don't sit around and contemplate your own spiritual mysteries. Go to the Bible. They recognize that all true Christians recognize that and ought to recognize that. That it's through the Bible as the Holy Spirit illumines our minds that we hear God. Not in some audible voice, but in what it says. The Bible is the means God uses to call us to Himself, to bless us as His people. This is why He says in verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth. What is that? 
the gospel. And so, God the Father and God the Son working through the Holy Spirit who reveals the Lord to us and opens our eyes to believe the gospel of our salvation. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit calls us. The Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. The Spirit unifies us. The Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God and only through the Word of God. And then finally, the Holy Spirit seals us. He seals us. Notice verse 13. Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed in who? In Christ. We are in Him. There's that vital linkage once again referenced here in verse 13. He was given, the Spirit was given as a pledge of our inheritance. God gave the Spirit to us to pledge to us that that inheritance is secure with a view to a redemption of God's own possession. Why? To the ultimate purpose of God's design in it all. To the praise of His glory. The late Charles Hodge in his commentary wrote it this way on this passage. I think it gives helpful insight for us in this whole purpose of why a seal language is used. This whole idea of the seal and why Paul uses it here to demonstrate the work of the Spirit on us. Hodge said it this way. He said, number one, a seal is used to confirm an object or a document as being true or genuine. Number two, a seal is used to mark a thing as one's own property. And three, a seal is used to make something secure. I think we can easily understand those descriptions as we read them. We, we think of the seal of the United States of America that we see on our, on our legal tender, our money. Or, or on our travel documents like a passport. You go over to another country, you have the seal of the United States on your passport document. And that seal speaks to the authenticity of the document. Or the authenticity of the money that you have in your hand. It speaks to the validity of it that you are using it. And it will actually do what it says on it. It, it, it can be used as legal tender for goods and services. It is authentic because we have put the seal upon it of the United States. It is backed by the United States. This is the idea of a seal here. It is used as that authenticity. The Holy Spirit is brought into our life as the authenticator as to who we are. We are God's children. Then, of course, Hodge said that it's a mark of one's own property. That's what a seal is for. It's the mark of one's own property. So we think of nameplates and we think of placards that are on certain pieces of property. And there's no mistake of the owner of the item. It says this is the property of. I remember when I worked for the government, everything they had, whether it was a computer, whether it was a desk, whatever it was, it had a little little metal plate on it said property of the United States government, even my ID card said that. Some of us have our own names stamped on the front of our Bibles. Stamped in the leather is our name so that no one is confused as to who the owner of that Bible is. We put our seal upon it. And so the Holy Spirit is that in our lives. The Holy Spirit is that stamp of ownership by God. God owns us. The Spirit is in us as that stamp of ownership from God. And then we also recognize that there are seals on things that secure them. Each and every time you and I seal an envelope and put it in the mail. There is a sense in which we have put a security seal on that envelope as we lick that envelope and stick that glue down to make sure that it doesn't come up. So then make sure that if anyone opens that envelope, we can tell whether they tore it open or not. Even some put a little sticker on the outside to even cover the edge of the envelope in order to secure it further. We certainly understand that. We understand the idea of a secure seal, particularly in the Scriptures when we think of the death of Jesus Christ and they put Him in the tomb and the soldiers sealed the 
tomb closed with wax and put the stamp of the emperor on it. And so each one of those ways is important for us to understand because each one of those speaks of something about the work of the Holy Spirit for us as believers. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit confirms our authenticity as the children of God. Just listen to it. Romans 8 verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the Spirit of God authenticating us. He is the authenticating mark with us and His Spirit, the Spirit of God confirms with our spirit that we are His children. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 says it this way, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. How? Because He has given us of His Spirit. The Spirit of God living in us is proof positive that we are the children of God. It authenticates the reality that we are His children. <clears throat> so being sealed by the Holy Spirit is the visual that we are God's property. We are God's property. And the Holy Spirit makes us secure in Christ. Right? He is our promissory note. He is our earnest payment, or the earnest payment given to us by God, ensuring that the full transaction will take place in the future, right? With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So the Holy Spirit is that earnest money, if you will, on the purchase of a property. You give that earnest money, and if you don't carry out the transaction, you lose all of that. Well, God gave His Spirit, the Spirit of God, to us as the earnest down payment so that the redemption of God's own possession is a guaranteed reality. Why? Because God will not give up on Himself. He cannot. So He's given to us by God so that we would know that the inheritance that we have in and with Christ is secure. Why do we live so foolishly as Christians? Because we've forgotten that. We have forgotten that. The Holy Spirit verifies our authenticity as God's children. It authenticates all the realities that we found in the blessing of God in the Spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places that are all attached with Christ. It verifies the authenticity of us being in Christ and the linkage we have in Christ. It's all just that guaranteed payment that God will in fact carry out to its fullest fruition the redemption which He has brought us into. So the Spirit of God guarantees all that God has promised to us he is saying, by giving the Spirit to us, all that I have told you will, in fact, come to pass. Why? Why did He do all that? Simply to the praise of His glory. All of it is to the praise of His glory. That is the ultimate purpose. Those words are the perfect end to what we began 13 verses before. To the praise of of His glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ is ours. We are His. And all that happened, why? Because God determined it to happen before He ever said, let there be light. God had a plan. And that plan would be accomplished through His Son. And it would be accomplished through His Son by means of the Holy Spirit. All to the praise of the glory of His grace. So it is to the praise of the Father. It is to the praise of the Son. It is to the praise of the Holy Spirit. To the praise of His glory. And so when Paul began to tell us of the blessings that God has bestowed upon us in salvation, He brought us all the way back, all the way back before creation, all the way back into God's eternal will, all the way back before anything was ever created, and He told us that salvation began when God chose us in Jesus Christ, ever before the foundation of the world. And then He showed us how that plan was worked out in time through the Son, 
God the Father has done this. God the Father has the plan. God the Son is carrying out that plan. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Christ. And it's the Spirit who makes it all happen. It's the Spirit that applies that work to us individually. So that we, individually and corporately, would be living to the praise of the glory of God. All for the purpose that God would be glorified. That's why he did it. So everything that we have in Christ, everything that we have through Christ, everything that we have been given in our linkage with Christ by the work of the Spirit, all returns back to the Father so that God is praised just as he deserves just as he will be praised for all eternity, just like Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the creator. That is his ultimate purpose. And it is for that which we exist. We exist for one purpose and one purpose only, that we might be to the praise of his glory. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that as we go to sleep tonight, as we wake up tomorrow, and as we walk through every day that God allows us. We live, we are here simply for that purpose, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank You Thank you for the blessings that we have here. Thank you for all that we have in Christ. Thank you for the magnificent depth and richness and beauty and wonder and majesty of all that we have been given by our linkage with Jesus Christ through your plan, through his accomplished sacrifice, all applied to us by the power of your spirit. Lord, help us understand these things that we might grow in them, be diligent in our walking in faith so that you would indeed in all things be glorified by us. You deserve it. It's only because of that that we live. And so help us to live to that end in everything we do. May the little frustrations of this world, the things that go on, the way in which the world revolts against you, we know all of that is coming to an end. One day it will all come to a fruition in Christ that everything is subjected to him and all will bow the knee and all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even though they may not know him as their Savior, they will confess him. It will be proven exactly what your word says. So help us to live to that end. Glorify you in all things. Live out the ultimate purpose that you created us for. Well, thank you for that. Even in the difficult times. Lord, may you be honored with us in this body, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.